Let's uh, turn to God's word uh, this morning to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. When we find these words in chapter 64 of Isaiah. And it says, They all that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. <coughs> come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We're all shivelled up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father, you are the clay we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. O holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Amen. And that verse, can we just look up Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14? That verse that we know so well. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 7 and 14. Let me just give it from maybe verse 12. This is an answer to Solomon's prayer. The Lord appeared to him, that Solomon at night, and said, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let's just bow before God in prayer. Loving God, we want to thank you just for the richness of your word and for the way that you want to speak into our lives and into our situations. We thank you, Lord, for the care and the love that's expressed in brothers and sisters in Christ, for the prayer that we bring before you, Lord, concerning our own lives, but also concerning the life of our nation. And as Graham has already said, how our nation has gone against your word in many ways. 
And we cry out to you, Lord, for our nation today. And we pray, Lord, that you will just guide us into all truth as we consult the scriptures. That you might touch our own lives and our family life and every area of life and our workaday life. That you'll just be there, Lord, to help us to apply the truth to everything that we do and say. And yet we're so conscious, Lord, that we're weak in ourselves. We are sinners saved by grace. And oftentimes we fail you, Lord, and we come seeking to repent of our sins and to know what it means to come before a holy and majestic God. Lord, we ask you to take this series of revival and, and do something powerful with it, even beyond our imagination. We thank you that you can do that. And we just pray your blessing upon this fellowship here that, that day by day and week by week there will be wonderful things happening. That you'll be touching lives and bringing them into the kingdom. And we thank you that you've been doing that already. But we long for more, Lord. We long to see your Holy Spirit coming down in power. That great fire of God coming upon us as happened at the day of Pentecost. And yet, Lord, we realise there's a tremendous cost to see that happen. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to realise the cost of being a people in revival times. So we ask you, Lord, to bless your word to us. We pray for those who are suffering for you in other countries, those who are seeking to bring the gospel in difficult areas. Help us not to be unmindful of them, but to remember them before you. Those who are struggling in their faith, perhaps are even here today. <clears throat> Lord, that they would just be built up in their holy faith. And we ask you, Lord, to meet with us in a special way as we open up the scriptures. We ask all this in the precious and peerless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, we come to our second uh, talk on revival as we find it in the Word of God. I don't know how many of you have heard about Duncan Campbell. He was involved in the Great Awakening of the Hebridean Revival. Maybe say a bit more about that uh, next Sunday, God willing. But I had the privilege of hearing uh, Duncan Campbell. I'm as old as that. <laughs> but when I was a manager over in West Linton in uh, West Calder, there was a wee faith mission prayer meeting. And Duncan Campbell came and spoke at that. There must have been about, I don't know, six or eight people there. And he was this mighty man of God that was used so powerfully in the Lewis revival. But God was doing a great thing up there. And actually, there were actually three Lewis revivals. And the one that everybody remembered in the 1940s is not the biggest one that happened in the Isle of Lewis. There's a wonderful book that's worth wading through. It's quite a thick book. And it's called Glory in the Glen. I've read it. Eileen's read it. So we've got it available. And it just shows you what God did in Scotland through the fishing communities. And there are fishermen who have gone to, down south to England who have come to Christ and come back up to Scotland and started a fire of revival in there. The brethren were involved, the free church has been involved, don't know how many Baptists were involved, but there has been a, a mighty move of God in Scotland through the brethren folks and through the free church of Scotland and, and many others as well 
It's a tremendous read. It takes a long time to get through this book. This man who, who wrote it is an expert on revival. He's got every book on revival you can ever think of. And he's taken the story up to about the, the Lewis revival. And he's going to write another book about what happens after that. If ever you want to, to read that, you can do so. What do we mean by revival? And I want to quote some of these folks who were actually involved in revival, even going back to the 18th century. Here is what Richard Owen Roberts said revival was. He says, Revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. The re-entry of Christ's manifest presence. Another person who was involved in revival is Steve Hawthorne who says, Christ showing up in an extraordinary powerful new way to significantly overthrow the status quo and establish the claims of his kingdom afresh. Sometimes we get content with the status quo. That things are going to continue just as they are. And then God does a mighty work by his Holy Spirit. An extraordinary work that knocks everything for six, even our programs and the things that we think should happen. Dr. Edwin Orr, he wrote many books about revival, says, Revival is war between the spirit and the devil. How true that really is. What is the features of revival? What are the features of revival? To answer that question, we do better, can do better than turn to Jonathan Edwards. He was a mighty man of God and used in revival. He saw two great revivals in the 18th century. And it was called the Great Evangelical Awakening. And he actually categorized what he believed revival was. And there were seven categories that he mentioned. And number one is this, that God makes people aware of how great and majestic he really is. Revival is that time where God makes us aware <clears throat> of how great and majestic God really is. And secondly, he says that God convinces men that he is perfectly holy. That is, unlike us, God is pure through and through. And when you come into a revival time, you realize in a, a way that you've never done before how holy this God really is. What it means to be in the presence of a holy God. Number three, he impresses, God impresses upon us that God hates sin. It displeases him, it incurs his wrath. And number four, he shows, God shows and convinces us that we are sinners. And number five, he encourages us to detest sin. And number six, he teaches us to be deeply sorry for our sins. And sometimes this sorrow is very intense. If you read stories of revival, people have been prostrate before God, weeping over their sins, not for a few moments, but for days. So much in mourning over the sin of their lives. That they have spent days in tears before the Lord. And then number seven he says, causing people to see that the message of God's word is so true. That God is so true to his word. And of course what we're seeing today in the national church and perhaps in other churches is not tooth decay but truth decay. Is that not correct? 
a decay of the truth in the church of Jesus Christ. If ever we stood in need of revival, it is today. When we see all the kind of things that are happening. This revival does not come from a committee looking at something for a couple of years. This is something that comes when the Holy Spirit comes as fire upon the church of God. Perhaps they've been praying for it in a powerful way. And God comes. This does not come through committees. This comes in a very powerful way. And so we find this verse in Isaiah 64 and verse 1. It says there, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and the mountains would tremble before you. And as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies, and cause the nations to quake before you. And some of you will have heard of the verse in Psalm 85 and verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in thee? That's what we need. You see, we're living in a time where truth is not easy. It's not easy to live according to the truth. And it's so different from this moral standard or the lack of it that we find in the world today. In other words, we need a different set of values. We need a new standard to live by, which is not new, but is God's original blueprint that we find for life in the Scriptures. But the question is this, what is holding back God's sovereign work of revival? That's what I want to look at today. What is holding back God working in revival? Can it just be that this is not God's time? That revival only happens in the 18th century or in the 19th century or the 20th century in Lewis, whatever it might be. That God has specific times and, and God is sovereign and he will choose what time revival is going to come upon this church. Is this not God's time? I don't think we can say that. But all we can do is wait. If you study the great revivals of the history, you'll see they did a lot more than wait. A lot more than wait. In fact, the Bible and history tell us that it has more to do with the church. I've said this before last week. It's got more to do with the church and the folk outside of it. It's the church that needs to be revived, not the folk outside the church who don't know Christ as Saviour and Lord. And yet revival can come through seeing many of those outside of the church coming to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't revive the world, but you can revive the church. And judgment begins, the word of God says, at the house of God. It begins there. And I want to say this lovingly to you, don't mess around with the church. Because it was built with the greatest builder. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't mess around with the church. It says in my Bible that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. My Bible tells me that Jesus rebukes the church in the book of Revelation. There was a lukewarm church that made Jesus sick. I once heard a preacher say, I would rather make Jesus angry than sick. 
But Greater was sickened by this church of Laodicea that we find in Revelation. I want to take you now to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. That's the verse that we're going to centre our thoughts on this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 17, 7 and verse 14. A verse that we all know and love so well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now the context here, of course, is the people of God, the people of Israel. They're the ones who call upon God's name. And this verse is really God's answer to Solomon at the dedication of the temple of God. For God to be attentive to the prayers of his people. And it also comes as the judgment of God. Look at verse 13 of that chapter. Get the context right here. In verse 13 of that chapter it talks here that when I shut up the heavens so there are no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people if my people call upon my name. So the context here is God is saying to Solomon in a way, if there's going to be a judgment over the nation, over the land, if my people start crying out to me and do what I'm telling you, something's going to happen. <clears throat> a judgment upon the nation. And I want to ask you the question, is there not a judgment upon our nation or the whole British nation at this time? Or the nations of the world. But it's in the context of something happening. Of the judgment of God upon the nation. That we find these words in Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14. This great verse of the scriptures expresses as no other scripture does. God's requirement for national blessing. Whether it's in Solomon's land or Ezra's land or in their own land. It's God's requirement for a national blessing. Let me share with you what's holding back the reviving power of God's Holy Spirit. In this Old Testament verse it tells us what's holding things back. And number one is pride. Number one is pride. Doesn't it say in verse 14 of Second Chronicles 7, If my people humble themselves. And pride is one of these things that we don't talk much about. We don't mention pride so much in our sermons or whatever it might be. But, but pride is one of those things that's keeping back the revival fire of God falling upon this church. And Jesus speaks about that to the church of Laodicea. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Pride was a problem in the church of Laodicea. And pride can be a, church, a problem in any church. Now this I believe that God sees more danger in pride than we see. He sees more danger than that. A people needing to be humble. That's what God sees. I wonder if we see that. That I need to be humbled. That you need to be humbled. And what's so interesting in the word of God. Is all that the book of Proverbs. Has to say about pride. Let me summarize it for you. 
It says in the book of Proverbs, I'm just summarizing here, pride refuses to listen. It always interrupts others. Secondly, pride likes to talk about itself all the time. Pride has an intense desire to be noticed. Pride believes that it deserves everything it gets. Pride is never thankful. Pride cannot be corrected. Pride does not like to follow instructions. Pride brags. Pride criticizes and tries to make itself look better by putting others down. Pride thinks of its own need first. Can I ask you if you're not in that list? I'm certainly there. And that's ten things that the Word of God teaches us in the book of Proverbs about pride. Do you ever sense the need to be humble before God? Do we need to, do we mean by humbling, what do we mean by that? To be hum humbled is to know our place before God. God has said to us that the first step in approaching Him is to evaluate oneself in the light of a holy and majestic God. To know our place before God is the result of being humbled. Lord, I'm nothing, but you are everything. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you would visit him, that you would care for him? To be humble is to know your place before a mighty, majestic and powerful God. When we think more of our own ways than God's, we need to be humbled. When we think we don't need God, you need to be humbled. The first barrier that Second Chronicles 7.14 tells us, that keeping back the reviving power of God is pride. Then the second barrier you find there is prayerlessness. It says, if my people who humble themselves and pray. <clears throat> it said that prayerlessness is the first cousin of pride. Listen, beloved, you can pray and not have revival, but you can't have revival and not pray. Isn't that true? You can pray and not have revival, but you can't have revival without prayer. That's how it works. Charles Finney has written many books on powerful revival and prayer. said that prayer is the essential link in the chain of events that leads to revival. I don't know where this actually happened, but one afternoon, Moody, you know D.L. Moody, he was the great uh, Billy Graham, before Billy Graham, as it were, he was the great evangelist that brought two continents together. That's what they said about D.L. Moody. He brought America and, and Europe, he brought them together by the gospel. Now one afternoon D.L. Moody wrote in his journal that the congregation he was preaching to, this may have been Scotland, they were the deadest crowd he had ever seen. And the only thing worse than preaching to these people was that he promised to go back and preach in the evening. They went back that night and about halfway through the sermon something happened. The people started to come to life. And he felt compelled to ask if anyone there would like to become a Christian. And a lot of people stood up. He didn't know what to do. So he said, maybe you don't understand what I'm actually asking of you. I'm asking him if any of you want to become a Christian. And if you do, I want you to wait behind after the meeting's over. 
Well, when the service was over, he went into the room, this inquirer's room, as they used to call it, and it was packed. And Moody said to the minister, What does this mean? And the minister said, I don't know, but I think you need to preach again tomorrow night. The next day, Moody got on the train and he went to Ireland to continue his vacation. But he got off the train there in Ireland. There was a memo saying to D.L. Moody, Come back! Revival has broken out. And so Moody got back on the train, went back to the church, and he preached for ten nights. Four hundred people responded to the invitation. Four hundred. Moody just couldn't understand those people were dead and something changed and what happened was that an 80 year old invalid widow named Mary Ann Adelard had read one of D.L. Moody's sermons in the newspaper had started praying every day that God would bring D.L. Moody to her church that's revival praying you know friends you and I know there's praying and there's praying isn't there there's praying and there's praying. There's praying in which we recite our list, which is over in minutes and it costs us nothing. And then there's praying that sacrifices pride on God's altar and declares its helplessness and holds on to God until he moves in mighty power in our lives and in his church. Leonard Ravenhill put it this way, the church is dying on its feet because it's not living on its knees. It's dying on its feet because it's not living on his knees. How's your prayer life? How's it going? Let me ask you this. Is it possible that you could be there on a Wednesday night when this church meets in prayer or on a Sunday night when they're still praying? Is it possible that you could be there and you're not there? Folks, we're not going to see revival in this place until we take prayer seriously. Is it possible that you could be there and you're not there because there's a prayerlessness in your life? How's your prayer life? It says in the Bible, when the people of Nineveh humbled themselves and began to pray, God moved in power and he sent a revival. Not one that Jonah wanted, but he sent a revival just the same. What holds back revival? Pride, prayerlessness. And thirdly, priorities. And by priorities I mean the wrong priorities. The verse says there in Second Chronicles 7.14, it goes on to say, You will seek my face. And there's something wonderfully significant about those words, seek my face. It has the thought of, of turning in his direction. This is a call for God's people to stop looking for help and purpose in every other thing in life. This is a call to make God the primary focus. Are you with me? A call to seek his face. When sometimes we're seeking everybody else and everything else in this world. To turn around and seek his face. You see, revival doesn't come to those who seek revival. Revival comes to those who seek God. It doesn't come to those who seek revival. It comes to those who seek his face. George Duncan used to be in the Tron used to tell the story about the wee boy who was sleeping with his dad one night he was a bit afraid, maybe mum was away I don't really know she, yeah, kids like to sleep with their mother sometimes but anyway he was sleeping with his dad 
and uh, when the light went out it was dark of course in the room and he was getting a bit frightened and so he started to he was wriggling like mad and the father says son will you stop wriggling in bed I'm trying to get to sleep and the wee fella stopped wriggling and he started to sing <laughs> and the father said will you stop singing I'm trying to get to sleep and there was silence for a wee while and the, the wee fella turned to his dad and he said in the darkness is your head facing my way are you facing my way and that's what God is doing and we need to turn and seek his face finally another hindrance to revival is presumption the Bible says turn from their wicked ways and, and the problem for Israel was they were guilty of presuming upon the grace and the goodness of God and the same trend is true in the church of day I'm saved and some of the things that I do don't really matter I'm saved anyway. I'm presuming upon the grace and the mercy of God. Presumption it's gone. The Bible teaches that sin keeps us out of the presence of God. The Bible teaches that sin closes the Lord's ear to our prayers. It's easy to see sin and hypocrisy in our nation and our world. But what about the church? The sin in the church... Why are we not having a revival? It's because we have sin that needs to be repented of. God's church people, they lie and cheat. They commit adultery. They're engaged in sexual activity instead of marriage. They carry hate in their heart. They walk in pride. They walk in hypocrisy. They drag the precious name of Jesus through the mud. Folks, we've got sin that needs to get repented of. Who will turn from their wicked ways. Stop presuming upon the grace and mercy of God. Unless we're really turning to God. And seeking his repentance for the things that are wrong in your life and mine. Those of you who get UCB notes will know there's sometimes there's some good stories come along the way. And there's a story told a number of years ago in one of my devotional notes. It says that one day... It talked about this woman who drove very close to the guy in front. And the guy in front stopped very quickly because the traffic light was at amber. Well, she was wild. The story says she was wild. She honked her horn at Tim and yelled profanities and gestures with her fingers. She was ranting and raving. And somebody tapped on the door of her car. It was a policeman. And he says, get out of the car. You're coming to the office. If I had to pull aside, get out of the car and come to the stage. Whereupon she was fingerprinted and put in a cell. And after a couple of hours she was released and the arresting officer gave her personal effects and said, I'm very sorry for the mistake, man. I pulled up behind your car when you were blowing your horn, using ugly gestures and foul language. I noticed... What would Jesus do? Bumper sticker and choose life violence plate holder. The follow me to Sunday school window sign and the peace emblem on your boot. And I naturally assumed that you had stolen the car. <laughs> <laughs> do we need to turn from our wicked ways? What kind of driver are you? What kind of husband? What kind of wife? What kind of parents? 
Ever said sorry to your kids for getting it wrong? Do we need a season of repentance? We're good with excuses and we're quick to rationalize our behavior, but so slow to fall before the Lord and confess our sins and receive his forgiveness. He will never bless us with revival until we do. We need revival, but will not come to presumptuous people who presume upon the grace of God. I'm saved and I can live as I like. The prayer of a righteous man, it says, is powerful and effective, says James. What's keeping the church of today from seeing the reviving power of God's Holy Spirit? Number one is pride. Do you need to be humble? Do you think you've got it all made? You've got this Christian thing sussed? Well, I don't certainly think that way. Do you need to be humbled? Prayerlessness? Is it possible you need to get together with the church and pray and get your own prayer life started? Has it become mediocre? doesn't matter too much. Priorities by priorities we mean misplaced priorities actually seeking the face of God, turning in his direction and presumption, presuming on the grace and the goodness of God rather than repenting of our sin. But where these enemies of revival are defeated, the verse goes on to say, I will hear from heaven. <clears throat> I will forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land. That's a description of revival. God hearing, God cleansing, God working. And the word heal, I'm told here, has the meaning of stitch back together again. To stitch back together, to repair thoroughly. Is that not what we need? For God to heal the land. For God to touch us. Stitch back together again. To repair thoroughly. And I think that's what God wants to do. I'll tell you this. We can cry out for mercy. And God will hear us. As we cry out in mercy, God will hear us. 